Good morning. Let's pray. Father, help me as a weak, needy child with the responsibility to teach and to unfold your purpose in redemptive history, your workings in our lives. May you use me this morning for the comfort and the inspiration and the empowerment of your children to walk with you and to draw near to you as never before. That's a miracle if it works in us, Father. So by your Spirit, work. Work your will in our wills this morning. Amen. I want to begin with a question to you Christians. Since the Lord miraculously grabbed hold of you and plucked you out of your Egypt of darkness and bondage, to be His and one of His people. Have you ever felt since then abandoned? Alone? Exposed to the uncertainties of your future? What lay ahead tomorrow? Have you ever felt as if God delivered you out of the Egypt of darkness and then sometime down the road picked you up and plucked you down into the middle of a wilderness where no running water is, no farmland, exposed you to the elements of your own circumstances, whether they be external to you, or where, whether they just be internal in your soul where you experience deep, dark nights of aloneness or depression or fear stripped of all your self sufficiency. Have you ever in your Christian life just fallen down on the ground in the wilderness and cried? Where are you, God? How long, O oh Lord? If you have experienced 
to one degree or another, or are now, and will in the future, here's the word of the Lord for you this morning. God is doing it for your good in the end. This is week 20 in our series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. So before we move out of the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, I want to spend this last week roaming through the 40-year wilderness wanderings of His people through Exodus to Deuteronomy. So remember, the five books of Moses starts with Genesis and then those next four, Exodus to Deuteronomy, essentially the law there with the narrative, the story of God's people only in encompasses 40 years through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers in Deuteronomy. We have seen that God, after 400 years, His people, the children of Abraham, were in slavery, delivered them miraculously out of Egypt. And now their enemies are drowned behind them. And He did it in order to fulfill the promise that He will bring them into the promised land that their forefather, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, journeyed through but didn't own, but will one day through their children. And now as they stand there, that promised land is about 200 miles away. And God leads them 200 miles out of the way to Mount Sinai. And you would think that God understood the map. The shortest route is right there. You promised, so let's go take the land. You just parted the Red Sea miraculously. You had ten plagues. You would think that God, can't you lead your people smoothly through the desert without any problems and pain, it would be a snap for him, wouldn't it? But he didn't. And God's purpose and workings in providence in His people or in persons at times seem very weird and strange and unwelcome to us. He must get weary at how often we in this room have questioned His itineraries for our lives. Or triptychs. I don't even know if you know what triptychs are anymore. We used to get a triptych for vacations at AAA, and you get a little booklet, and you go through this town and this. Here's the route to where do you want to go? What do you want to see? Well, we want to go to Canaan, and here's your triptych 200 miles the other way. 
Think about how often we think we know better how to fulfill our dreams and our hopes in this life. I would go that way, not that way. And thus we so quickly murmur and grumble at the detours that our sovereign God leads us through. Instead of sitting patiently, learning lessons that He has for us. God is a very mysterious leader. Let me ask you, did you see the last year of your life the way it has transpired coming? Some of you, did you see the last four years of your life? That's how it was going to work out. Those are the kinds of relationships that would happen. Those are the obstacles you would go through. For many of us, did you see the last three decades? Is that how you planned it in your 20s? You where exactly you, you had your own triptych. Is that the route you would have taken? Nope. And it's never, never works out quite like we plan. Sometimes close. And we are to make plans, but the Lord will direct our steps. God is always leading His people into wilderness wanderings. He even led His Son, the Lord Jesus, into the wilderness for 40 days in order to be tempted. And so we know that when God does that with His children, like with His Son, it is not because He has something against them. God must think there is something good, something really important to be gotten out of wilderness experiences. And with this story, he must think that there's no hurry for his people Israel to get into the promised land and glut themselves on milk and honey and everything going wonderful for us down here on the other side of the Jordan. In fact, God's view is this that when He does take His children over the Jordan River eventually, and they possess the land and own plots of land and build houses and have plunder and farms, He thinks that is what's really dangerous to our souls. And so, he deems the 40 years of the wilderness wandering is extremely important for preparation to handle it. The preparation of weaning his people from dependence 
on false gods. Of working in them utter desperation and dependence upon Him. Of killing their self-sufficient deception. Because that self-sufficiency will kill their faith. This is exactly what God says through Moses to the people of Israel after the long 40 years of just wandering in the wilderness. So I want you to turn there and look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Just before they cross over the Jordan into the land that God has promised them so that they would begin now to take it and to possess it. We read these words starting with verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and rules and statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord your God who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know. And He did it. He did it all in order that he might humble you and test you in order to do you good in the end. And so beware. Beware lest you say in your heart as you go over the Jordan, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth 
that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. That's God's philosophy in a nutshell for your life if you're a Christian. And particularly you younger people in your teens and your 20s, listen to it. He led them into and through the wilderness for the purpose of humbling them and testing them in order to do them good in the end. What good? The good is not in order that they will finally have houses and plenty in the land of Canaan. You don't need 40 years of testing in order to enjoy wealth. But there was a loving smashing Peter would later say, there is a melting down of gold to bring out to the dross, and to purify, and to grow. There is a loving working of God in wilderness experiences that comes from our loving Father. And the good that God was after in the wilderness testing was to make people more intensely, more deeply, and more lastingly conscious of their absolute, total dependence upon Him. God's goal was to give them experiences in the wilderness which would make it impossible for any spiritual person to reasonably say, verse 17, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me all this wealth. The real danger of life is the promised land. The wilderness is the boot camp of training for it. The land of milk and honey and plenty is where a lot of the battle for our hearts will be fought. But we have to know there is much more danger there. In nice houses, beautiful gardens and flocks, perfect career, the perfect job, making plenty of money, vacations, family and children and grandchildren. Much more danger there than there ever was in the dark night of the soul. In the wilderness, wandering of His people. The wilderness is God's grace. The wilderness is one of God's ways in which 
he brings about the promise of guaranteeing that every one of his children will be preserved and persevere to the end. So if you are in Jesus, if you love him, you know that, yes, he's so good to me. If that's you, and, and, and as of yet, you, you have never been thrown into the wilderness, unless he kill you today, you will be. It's going to come to one degree or another into numerous times, depending on the years you have ahead of you. And right before this passage in Deuteronomy that I just read a few verses before in verse 5, we read this. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And the New Testament picks up on that in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 11, and says, For the moment, Christian, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, but later, no, just pause for a moment, verse 16 of chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, in order that he may do you good in the end. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The wilderness is never easy. That's the point of it. Never. But it's for our good. If we will be trained by it. And those who are trained by it and being trained by it end up being the most stable in God, the most happy in Christ, the most free and the most thankful wherever they are in their journey and wherever they end up. So let's spend a few minutes and skim through the history of Israel during the wilderness wanderings. The journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai, where we've already been, took about three months. And there's Israel, hundreds of thousands of them, camped in their tribes at the base of Mount Sinai. And then for the next Two years they remain right there at Mount Sinai where God is giving them the law and they are then building and constructing the tabernacle. Two years right there. And those two years are covered in the books of Moses starting with Exodus chapter 19 all the way through the rest of Exodus, all through Leviticus, and the first nine and a half chapters of Numbers, just two years, the base of Mount Sinai. Then, beginning in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, the people set out from Mount Sinai towards the promised land, Canaan. And they end up at a place called Kadesh 
in the wilderness of Paran. Now they're about a hundred miles away from the promised land. And then they send in 12 spies. One from each tribe to go in, just to 12, and that's what they're doing. They're spies. No one knows where they're from. And they're checking out the land, and they're gone for weeks. And the people's in the land. And so 40 days later, did I say 10 or 12? Okay, good. So those 12 spies return. And two of them, Caleb and Joshua, give this report to Moses and to all the people. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 30. Let us go up at once and occupy the land. For we are well able to overcome it. But then the other ten spies disagreed. And they said to all the people, and what they said was amazing, their argument, because these ten guys walked through the Red Sea on dry land also. They were taken care of miraculously for the last two and a half years in the wilderness. And they're still alive. And they say, in verse 31, we are not able to go up against the people because they are stronger than we are. <laughs> Can you imagine Caleb and Joshua and what must have happened to their faces at that moment? And so they Speak again to the people, Caleb and Joshua in chapter 14, verse 7 and 9, and they say, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord, Yahweh, is with us. Do not fear them. Caleb and Joshua are born again. They're believers. And they're a precursor to what so many believers over the last few millennia have experienced, and that is this, where true believers are just always baffled at other religious folk who are nominal Christians in name culture only. See, for Caleb and for Joshua, 
their ground of saying what they said was not on, well, it's a big football team over there. I don't know if we can take them. It was based on God said, go up and take the land. And so for them, it was absolutely irrelevant whether they looked like grasshoppers in the sight of the enemies there or not. In fact, that just may be God's purpose that you look like a grasshopper compared to them so that he gets all the glory. And then we read on in Numbers 14. And the people of Israel as a whole, they prove that two and a half years of wilderness wandering was not nearly enough time to teach them to trust in God alone. And so they rebel against God and against Moses. And they demand stone Caleb and Joshua to death. And so in Numbers 14, verses 11 to 12, God says to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Moses, I'm going to strike them with pestilence and disinherit them all. And then Moses spoke back, interceded, prayed. And his foundation for his prayer was not how good the people were. His foundation of his prayer was God's glory is at stake. He argues with God saying, God, if you do that, your great name, Yahweh, will be disparaged by the Egyptians because they will say, you're able to deliver them out of Egypt, but you are unable to bring them in to the promised land. That's how Moses prayed. And not only that, he went further. He took God's Word, His revealed revelation, and Moses quoted God back to God in Numbers 14, verses 18 to 19. If you remember, when God says, Moses, I'll show you my glory. I'll tell you who I am. And then He says, the Lord, the Lord. Moses knows that by heart, and he quotes God back to him. Here's Moses' words in his prayer. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. So please, oh God, 
pardon, forgive the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you have forgiven this people all the way from Egypt up until this day. And the fervent and the righteous prayer of those who belong to God avail much. God answers Moses' prayer in verses 20 and 25. I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live, Moses, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have yet put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, moving away from Canaan. The whole class of Israel flunked. They flunked the exam of the wilderness training, and thus they were not allowed to graduate. And God will wait. He'll wait until all of those unbelievers are dead before He takes the people Israel into the land. And so the Israel wandered another 38 years in the wilderness. And that period of 38 years in the books of Moses is then covered from Numbers chapter 14 to the end. And then you get Deuteronomy, which is at the end of the 40 years and all those sayings. The lesson that God is teaching us here, right now, this day, is crystal clear. Do not, believer, do not harden your heart as they did under Moses in the wilderness in their rebellion. Even though they saw God's glory, they experienced His signs 
in Egypt and His tender fatherly care for them in the wilderness for two and a half years, yet they put Him to the test time and time again, grumbling and did not obey His voice or trust His promises. The implication is clear. God's purpose in the exodus and in the wilderness wanderings was to humble the people and then to show them His miraculous care and wonders on their behalf in order that they would learn to trust in the Lord with all of their hearts and to lean not on their own understanding, but in all of their ways and their steps to, to acknowledge Him and trust that He will direct their path. God's putting His people, Israel, through the wilderness or all of His people in every age through wilderness wanderings is first and foremost in order to expose our human weaknesses and sin and helplessness in and of ourselves. When Jesus came on the scene, it's how He taught. Unless you turn, turn around, and you become like little children to God, you shall all likewise perish. That's, that's the hard, that's the negative side of God's testing, which is grace to smash our self-sufficient egos, pride, and the crazy idea of radical independence. But there's also the positive side during the wilderness wanderings, then and in our lives now, and that is in the midst of them, experiencing God's provision even while crying. Israel, they were experiencing the very first part of God's provision. You're going to go all the way back now. They just got delivered out of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 16, they realized this foundational reality. Without God continuing to do something, <laughs> we're doomed. <laughs> Where are we going to get food? And water. And so we read these words in Exodus 16.3. Oh, we would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full. For here we are now. <laughs> Moses, you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with starvation. There's foundation. And so God speaks to it. Got that first lesson learned? We're doomed without God. 
But now comes the next lesson. God says, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground, for which every day they were able to make their dough and cook it into bread. So the lesson's clear. God can take care of you, Israel. Even when it seems naturally and humanly impossible, He can take care of your most dire needs in the most dire circumstances. And therefore, Israel, Christians, you should trust Him. You should obey Him. And you should be deeply thankful. We should rejoice, even in the wilderness, because we know that God has good for us as His goal. That's clear. Deuteronomy 8.16. And that even here, even while in dark times in our lives, in tears, not denying pain, we can know that here our needs are met. But in the story, Israel didn't learn. They didn't learn from that first part. They didn't learn from God's gracious, miraculous gift every stinking day for their sustenance. They didn't learn their utter dependence and helplessness and that God is all and in all and who else shall we look to? And so months passed and soon the manna, what is it? Manna, food, we survive. That itself became assumed. Became old hat. It's just like for us, breathing air becomes old hat. Just everyone does, so God's really not in that, really. That you might have woken up today without knowing that you have cancer in your body, we just assume, old hat, my health. Or a family that's intact. Or the freedom that you may have. Or most grievously, we Christians live portions of our lives in our pain and our grumbling worse than the manna provision. And what is old hat to us is that He plucked me out of darkness and He saved my soul. And He's promised an eternity of future and resurrection, yet not enough. What have you done for me lately? Israel forgot its source. They felt no more wonder at God's power and His daily grace and provision. 
And so on their way from Mount Sinai to Canaan, the people grumbled again and they cried for meat. In Numbers 11, verse 18. And you say, who will give us meat to eat? And they said, it was better for us in Egypt as slaves. They've lost all sense of gratitude. And they murmured, saying, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Of course, they need to feed your body to continue to whip you to build their cities. You're a slave. We remember the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna that you miraculously give us every day. That attitude makes God angry. And so He tells Moses to say to the people in Numbers 11, verse 18, The Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before Him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? Many brothers and sisters over the centuries and today have circumstances that they could say while they're being imprisoned or tortured or about ready to be put to death. Why did you take me out of hell for this? And we grumble at little things. Why did we come out of Egypt? It is a terrible and a foolish thing to say to God, my life would be better if I had not ever followed you into the wilderness. Only very short-sighted and stubborn people drop out of God's wilderness school. It's not easy. Nothing on earth that is worthwhile is easy. But this is absolutely essential if your destination is the promised land. 
we today need to remember the explicit purpose that God had in leading his people into the wilderness, doing wonders for them there. It is Deuteronomy 8, verse 16. He did it that he might humble you and test you in order to do you good in the end. In the wilderness wanderings, in the dark nights of the soul, whether external or internal circumstances, we, by God's grace, are being stripped of the devices by which we deceive ourselves in thinking we are self-sufficient. We come to that glorious village in the wilderness where there's nowhere to turn but to God, to God's holy word. The test is whether we will be thankful for His merciful provision for delivering us from Egypt of the darkness of our souls and whether we'll rest then and there in His sovereign care and providence. The good that comes to us that God promises is the solid assurance. It's Caleb and Joshua, God, that no matter what giants in the land before any of us loom and we feel as grasshoppers in their sight. No matter what giants, like the giant of the uncertainty of your future, or it could be the giant of a hellish marriage, or it could be the giant of the prospect of your singleness now. Or it could be the giant of financial disasters or of your career. Or 10,000 other things that you see not. We, in facing them, can be like Caleb and Joshua who trusted in the Lord. And thus, in the midst of them, we can find our joy even while in the wilderness because God is our goal. As the New Testament lets us know, even with Abraham about the land of Canaan, he was not seeking a land here on earth. He's out to do you good in the end. The end is the consummation of the kingdom. And that you'll make it. And you'll be there. Come hell or high water. You'll be there. 
Because you're His. God is our possession. So this morning, whether you find yourself in the wilderness, in the dark night of the soul, or you find yourself in the land of Canaan right now, enjoy it and be thankful. I want to close with manna from heaven. No matter where you are, let this be your heart cry. Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness wherever you are. Delight yourself in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. We can sing along with Horatio Spafford when he penned something like 130 or 40 years ago. She stood on the bow of that ship where the captain stopped it over the place where his children died and drowned. Because he knew, he knew that Ultimately, His sovereign God was working for good in the end. And so He penned the words that we also, because of the Gospel, can sing. When peace like a river attendeth my way. And then he looks over the ship and sees the waves lapping. Sea billows. Or when sorrows like sea billows roll. What's the next line? Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father, you're good. May we we who, who, who love peace we love the absence of pain. And you've called us to that ultimately and eternally in the joy of your glory with your Son forever. But we also know now we experience the tension between both 
as sinners, yet undone in a broken and sinful world in which you are in ultimate, absolute, sovereign, God-glorifying control. Oh, make us, Father, even this week, in the little things and the big things, the little deserts and the massive deserts where there seems to be no end. Make us a thankful, desperate, yearning for your presence kind of people to the glory of your holy name through Jesus Christ. Amen.